Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. What we know of Christ's time on earth comes principally from four men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now their writings were inspired by the Holy Spirit, as all scripture must be. The Holy Spirit drove and organized them and their thoughts, even bringing specific words to mind. But they didn't necessarily sense the Holy Spirit and his influence at that precise moment. You see, they had a simpler, more natural purpose. Luke, like many authors in the New Testament, states his purpose immediately in his gospel. Of the four gospels, two were written by disciples, Matthew and John, and two by later followers, Mark and Luke. Now, Mark was a close companion of Peter, and so his account is probably told through Peter's eyes to a large extent. Luke was a faithful traveler with Paul, and even though Paul didn't accompany Jesus, he did receive direct revelation from Christ after the resurrection. Luke was a physician and a Gentile, the only known Gentile author in Scripture. He is also responsible for writing the book of Acts, and the books of Luke and Acts comprise roughly 27% of the New Testament. Now, Luke wrote his gospel not long after Christ's death, probably during Paul's Roman imprisonment. Luke was a physician which is not the same as being a doctor today. You see, no one liked to deal with the body, especially sick and dying bodies. It was unpleasant and considered dirty work. And the Jews would never consider such a role, since that would make them unclean. So that role usually went to the Gentiles, but even more than that, often to Gentile slaves or indentured servants. And so it is entirely possible that this is the relationship between Luke and Theophilus. Theophilus, after all, is the intended audience of Luke's gospel. Luke's scientific nature meant that he took a very careful approach to his writing. Luke tells Theophilus that since others have tried to write about Christ's life based on eyewitness accounts, he would like to try his hand at it too. But Luke suggests in the first verses of his gospel that he is in a better position to write. He has investigated carefully and placed everything in chronological order. His gospel sets the record among the gospels, but it was not necessarily perfectly chronological. 
the Greek word kathexis, which means orderly sequence. Luke's purpose is to ensure the readers know how he can believe that what has been taught. Likewise, that should be our purpose today, to believe what we've been taught, but also ensuring we get the facts correct. Knowing the facts of our faith, strengthen it. Those who would diminish the importance and value of studying the Bible don't appreciate its relationship to faith. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, we read, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. The very foundation of our relationship with Christ begins with his word. Our ability to hear comes from the word of Christ, and then our ability to grow in that faith continues through the word. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, we read, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. We are commanded to press on to maturity by Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1. It isn't an option. To stay immature is to disobey the Lord. Do you abstain from idol worship? Do you come to church regularly and participate in communion? Do you try to lead a Christ-like life pleasing to God? Then you must learn the word as well. Luke is helping his readers fulfill that responsibility through his giving of an accurate, complete account of Christ's life. In Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Judea is the name for the modern-day Israel. Now, in Jesus' day, it was a province of the Roman Empire and was governed by Herod the Great. The nation of Israel, though under Roman rule, still had permission to rule themselves according to their law. The temple was standing. Herod had made it even grander. The sacrifices still took place, and priests still officiated at the temple. One of those priests was Zechariah from the division of Abijah. 
David divided the sons of Levi, priests, into 24 divisions, with a family leader as head of each division. Abijah was the leader of one of those divisions. Each division served in the temple for one week, twice in a year. Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, was also descended from a priestly family through Aaron. God wanted to be clear that the product of this union would be fit to serve God as the priests serve him in the temple. Moreover, they were called godly and blameless. The term blameless is one we've seen before. Noah was called blameless in Genesis. It doesn't mean without sin. Rather, it means without giving opportunity for men to find fault. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, Paul wrote, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Don't lose sight of the fact that when God wishes to bestow on men the greatest of honors, he will select men and women who lead godly lives. God calls Noah blameless. Abraham was told to be blameless. And Job was blameless. David declares repeatedly in the Psalms the virtues of being blameless. We should all make living a blameless life a high priority so that God might decide to use us for great service and honor. There was only one problem with this marriage. The union was childless. Where have we seen this before? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, whenever God wishes to make the point that a child given to a couple will be especially important in his plan, he delays its arrival, which emphasizes that when it arrives, it was given by him. But because this birth will be closely connected to the birth of his son, the giving of the child will be preceded by angelic announcers. In Luke chapter 1, verses 8 through 17, we turn and read, Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your petition, your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. 
and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah was in the temple performing his duties during one of his two weeks per year. Now he would have traveled from home to the temple for part of the week of work. For him, a business trip. Each day, there was incense burned before the altar as part of the daily sacrifice. Burning the incense was considered a special honor. Since there were so many priests in each division, each priest would be given only one opportunity in a lifetime to burn incense before the throne. Today, Zechariah wins the lottery, as it were, and is selected to go into the holy place and burn incense. Now, do you think the day of his selection was an accident? We know that God selected him that day so that this day, Zechariah, could be used by God. The angel appears as Zechariah stands before the altar. Now, naturally, Zechariah is afraid, but the angel tells him not to fear. The angel says his prayers his petition have been answered. Zechariah had been praying for a child, a son. God was answering his prayers. His son would be named John and he would have a special place in God's plan. The very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, God gives his final words to Israel prior to the arrival of his son, the Messiah. It was a time of great apostasy. The nation of Israel, almost to a man, gone astray, corrupt. And God says to Israel in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, How have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Now moving down later to Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 and then 5 and 6, we read, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet 
before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. These final words were a stern warning that before the coming of the Messiah, God would send a messenger ahead of him. But the context of Malachi makes clear that he was referring to Elijah himself returning, and the time would be at Christ's coming to establish his kingdom. In other words, the end times. So Malachi's prophecy concerns the end times, the second coming of Christ, and his setting up of his kingdom on earth. So why then does the angel refer to Malachi when describing the birth of John the Baptist? Is John the Baptist Elijah? We see an answer to this very question in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. This is the testimony of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now later in Luke, Zechariah actually quotes from the same part of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3, saying, A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Interestingly, Isaiah chapter 40 includes elements of both Christ's first and second coming, giving prophecy of both events in the same chapter. So John the Baptist is fulfilling some of the prophecy of the Messiah's arrival found in Isaiah, at least Jesus's first coming. But then how is he connected to Christ's second coming, as the angel suggests with his quote of Malachi? We know that our God works through pictures and repetition. He often places events in the lives of men as pictures or examples of greater things to come. Isaiah, Isaac was a picture of Christ as was Joseph. Now we see John fulfills Isaiah's prophecy for a voice in the wilderness crying out in advance of Christ's first coming. But this is itself a picture of an even greater event, the time when Elijah returns before Christ's coming. In other words, John the Baptist is a type of Elijah. He is not Elijah, but he pictures Elijah's coming 
before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Just as Christ's second coming has greater glory and power than his first, so also Elijah's return will be a greater ministry than John the Baptist's. When Luke quotes from Malachi, he adds an interesting detail, that the messenger would prepare a people made ready for the Lord. John's ministry was first about preparing a people for Christ. In chapter 3, we'll study John's baptism of Jesus. But for now, consider this. When Christ begins his adult ministry, he starts with his baptism. In that moment, he immediately has an audience. Gathered around John were his disciples, who had been hearing about the coming Messiah and the fulfillment of prophecy for a Savior. A people made ready for the Lord. So as soon as Christ is ready to begin his ministry, the Father has already prepared a people to be looking for him and ready to respond. The Father is still doing this even today. The Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity responsible for preparing hearts to receive the Lord today. In John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45, we read, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist is a picture of the Holy Spirit's ministry as well, something that we will expand on when we get to chapter 3 and Christ's baptism. Then Zechariah, having heard the angel's words, responds. Picking back up in Luke chapter 1, verse 18, we read, Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Does this sound familiar? Abraham said this to God when he was told that he would have a child. Back in Genesis chapter 17, verses 16 and 17, we read, I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Their reactions seem very similar, don't they? In Abraham's case, God simply assured Abraham that Ishmael wouldn't be the chosen son and that another son would be born. But what about Zechariah? In verses 19 and 20 of Luke 1, we get our answer. 
The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been able to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. So you may be asking yourself, why the difference? Consider the words each used and what thoughts were likely behind them. In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah says, How will I know for certain? In other words, he's asking for a proof, a sign, something that would cement his belief in the angel's promise. Here he's standing in front of an angel, one that made him fear, and yet he needs proof in order to accept the statement he's heard. He doesn't believe it, and the angel says the same thing. So to prove his power, the angel makes Zechariah mute. Now I'm sure he believed. He got what he asked for. Proof. But Abraham's statement was different. In Genesis chapter 15, he was told that he would have a son, and God entered into a covenant to promise him one. But by the time we get to chapter 17, Abraham has had a son, Ishmael. So naturally, Abraham believes he has the promised child. When he hears that Sarah will have a natural child, he laughs. He's astonished. And then he exclaims, is it possible that I can have a son at this age? In other words, he reacts in this astonished way because he believes God can do it. His next comment further supports that view. In Genesis 17, verse 18, we read, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abraham asked God to select Ishmael rather than grant him another son. But God refused to do so. So Zechariah's comment indicated lack of faith, while Abraham's was because of faith in God's ability to do what he promised. But there is likely a second reason that Zechariah questioned, but there is likely a second reason that Zechariah's question was punished while Abraham's was not. The angel speaking to Zechariah quoted Old Testament scripture, Malachi to be exact. This was a place in scripture that every devoted Jew would know. Abraham didn't have the benefit of scripture, yet he still believed God's word. It seemed God placed higher expectations on Zechariah because he had the opportunity to understand what the angel was speaking. Luke chapter 1 verses 21 through 23. The people were waiting for Zechariah and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. 
Perhaps this is a good lesson to end on for us today. Having been given God's word, how familiar are we with it? Do we make learning it a priority in our lives? Are we still needing milk and therefore unable to discern good from evil? If God were to place you on the spot like he did Zechariah, how would you fare? Next week, we turn to the account of Mary and the promise of the greatest birth in all of history. You won't want to miss it.